This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the Ngunnawal people of Ngunnawal Country, the Bindal people of Thalgari Waja, and the Wulguru Kaba people of Garambilbara, the traditional custodians on the land on which we stand today. We would like to pay our deepest respects to Elders, past, present and future, acknowledging the ongoing intergenerational trauma caused by colonisation and genocide. Sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome everyone to another episode of Loud, Angry and Not Sorry, where we talk about news and current events from a feminist perspective. My name's Leah and this week we are joined by young Stephanie. Hi. Hi. <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah, again. Sorry, we've been experiencing some technical dramas and setting this up, but that's okay. Yeah. The joys of podcasting. Because mm, we've just gone back into lockdown in Melbourne, like all of my meetings have started happening on Zoom again. I swear to God, the last year just didn't happen. We're all trying to talk on mute and no one knows how to connect your headphones to anything. I'm just like, we did this for a year. Like, we're, like surely we've learnt some things, but we, we, have, we have not. Sunshine has bleached brains. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, maybe. Mm. I got COVID tested today because I um I had a slight cough last night and I freaked out. Um, and it was actually like, I'm, it's a bit weird to say, but it was quite delightful. Like I felt like he cleaned my nostrils out for me. It was really good. I was just like, mm, this is fancy. <laughs> or maybe I should blow my nose more. I, look, I don't know. COVID testing with scented freshness. Yeah, it would be good if there was some like a mint or something afterwards that you could have. Lemony fresh or pine mint? What is your choice of COVID test today? Mm, natural lemon or would you like something a bit more exotic like mango and peppermint? Frangipani. What would a frangipani taste like? High in sugar. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair. So, um, thanks everyone for tuning in. That was a weird episode. See you later. No, I'm joking. Uh, uh, this week we are going to be talking about the budget. Boo. Yeah, two thumbs down, long, long fart noises. Would not rent again. Yeah, no, no. I do recognise it's been um, a hot minute, but shut up. We both have lives. And also, there's a lot to go through. If you read the fine print rather than just, like, reading what News Corp gives you, there's a lot of fucked up shit in this thing, and that does take time on top of, like, me, you know... Studying. Needing to go get dumplings every now and then. Start. Um, look, I don't know if you'd call what I do at TAFE studying. Look, cramming is still a form of study. So, Stephanie, while we're talking about the budget, is it real? No. It is not. <laughs> it is 100% not real. Um, Actually, no. <laughs> look, there are budget papers produced, there are documentation, publications, media releases, speeches made, there are entries in Hansard, but no, the budget is essentially a propaganda piece to outline the government's agenda, beliefs. Yeah, priorities. Yeah, supposedly for the next financial year, except this one becomes a little bit more weird because they're rolling sometimes up to four years of funding, one statement. And so, like, this entire budget is literally just propaganda. Yeah, just because they say it doesn't mean they do it. Oh, yes, you still have to pass all of these things in Parliament. There's also no accountability. Where are the journalists questioning old mate Frido about, like, well, you said last year this, like, what has happened to that? Yeah. It means nothing. Absolutely not. So there was a survey by KPMG, this audit, tax and advisory service. They estimated that violence against women and children uh, cost around sort of $22 billion just between the years 2015 and 2016. 
And these statistics don't take into account Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, disabled women and pregnant women. And if you sort of adjust that data and incorporate those people into these statistics, the, the cost raised by about $4 billion. So it goes jumps to $26 billion. Is that right? 22 plus four? Yes. Okay, good. So shall we have a quick look at the federal government budget for domestic and family violence since 2015? Under Turnbull in 2015, they budgeted 101.2 million. 2016, 116.7 million. Bear in mind, this this sector costs 22 billion. In 2017, Turnbull slashed that budget to 65.7 million. 2018, Turnbull Morrison sort of slash situation, 54.4 million. Spill, spill, spill. Yeah. <laughs> Fight, fight, fight. <laughs> but in, and so in 2019, Morrison announces this, you know, 327 budget, which is like, whoa. I don't know where any of that went. In, um, sure. Okay. But then in 2020, that's 240 million over five years, which is only 0.3% of the budget and averages at 48 million per year, which goes all the way back to 2018 like less than 2018 and that isn't just family violence that includes everything that even slightly pertains to women like 51 percent of the population 52 percent if you roll up 52 percent if you round up receives only 0.3 percent of the budget in 2020 then in 2021 we get 216.4 million over two years for family and domestic violence averaging 108.2 per year, which is doubled from the 2020 budget, but on par with previous years. Where did you get these figures? Because um, we're in the 2021 to 22 budget and the number for, for family and domestic violence is um, $250 billion, uh, million. Uh, I got this from a website, one of the government ones, but it doesn't surprise me that there's conflicting numbers out there. Yeah, look, there there is probably a discrepancy between what was spent and what was recorded, like what was promised and what was yeah. recorded. That might be um, account for some of the weirder numbers in there. Yeah, yeah, because like honestly, a lot of these statistics were not pulled pulled from the one site. They were like me searching and rummaging and trying to find them, because a lot of it is hidden. They don't like to put the actual numbers next to things other than in the actual budget itself because nothing gets promised afterwards. And I'm sorry, but I'm not reading Hansard. I don't blame you. No one should. No (laughs) one in their right mind should read Hansard. So regardless if it's like 250 or 216, it's still grossly underneath that 22 billion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So who pays? Obviously, victim survivors pay in every every sense of the word. It's average that the victim survivors pay 51% of the costs of accessing services, while federal, state or territory governments pay a mere 19% of overall costs. Communities, friends, children of the victim survivors, employers, even perpetrators sometimes cover 29% of the costs. And if they can't pay, Women either stay in abusive and potentially deadly arrangements or face homelessness. It's it's pretty grim. It's pretty grim. But even even the government's own women's budget statement actually says in there, violence against women has been estimated to cost Australia $26 billion annually. And 
Here yes. we are offering $1.1 billion over four years. <laughs> yeah. So as domestic and family violence has been steadily rising, the funding that's available to, to victim survivors has been steadily decreasing. This means that the percentage being covered by victim survivors and their networks is also increasing. And once again, if you don't have access to funds, it's remaining in an abusive, potentially deadly environment or risking homelessness where once again, the risk of abuse, assault and rape is just so significant yeah it's pretty fucking grim it's really grim yeah so yeah we mentioned the government's own women's budget statement is allocating 1.1 billion dollars over four years once again there's nothing to actually bind them to that there is this is not a legally binding agreement this is (laughs) just when the legislation gets passed and the funding for it does then that becomes a reality of sorts yeah but this thing's like 34.1 million dollars allocated for the prevention and intervention in relation to violence against disabled women. 34.1 million. <sighs> what do you do with that? Whose job is it to come up with these figures? If you put a 4.1 or a 4.3, they'll think that we've calculated something. That's a legit thing, but for, for another time. But yes, they it might just as well be because we don't have access to the background calculations that say that this will cost this much. There is a there is a, a office in Parliament that costs particular plans but how they come to it it's 34.1 million it's an advertising campaign it's an awareness campaign well and the thing is essentially they don't say here is our plan to spend this 34.1 million dollars i couldn't find anything that was that was indicating what exactly they were going to spend this money on yeah but if you look at that figure like that's not enough to do anything with enough for an app (laughs) don't even there's there's been enough apps suggesting rise of the apps Planet of the apps. Oh, my God. Anyway. anyway. <laughs> so there's $60.9 million for reform family law case management processes. Okay, so obviously, unless you have been devoid of internet access, which my <laughs> deepest sympathy Which, you know, it's Australia, so maybe. <laughs> True. The Australian government has killed the family court, merged it into the federal court. Thanks, Pauline fucking Hanson. Fucking cunt. <laughs> and I will not end up in court over saying something that I will later regret, because I believe she is litigious. But she is a sack of human shit. Yeah, human shit is, like, generous. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm very bad with my insults at the moment. Um, but basically... <laughs> Uh, basically, as it stands right now, all of the judges and all of the infrastructure has just basically been merged. So you go to the one place. There's problems with that. And a lot of the problems that we had in the past with the family court were due to underfunding. Yeah. So this is really not solving anything. Essentially, they're allocating sections in the women's budget for the structural spending that is required to facilitate this merger. Putting it in the women's mm-hmm. budget. Because, you know, infrastructure. Women use roads. <laughs> Families are for women. Yeah, a, that, that's a big theme. Yeah. So, yes, there's money that's spent to reform the entire process and to, to merge it all together. But there's no additional funding for access. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like the problem that existed with the family court to begin with is still going to exist. It costs money. Yeah. It's almost as if the government doesn't care. And there's also $29, uh, sorry, $29 million for information sharing. Look what? Pretty much. The internet doesn't exist for lawyers, apparently. Or the court, or judges, or clerks. I understand the need for, like, you know, increased security around this kind of information and data. Absolutely. But this comes up a lot in this budget, particularly, where essentially there is money allocated for data collection, for streamlining data sharing across government departments. But it's like, this is what we have the public service for. Yeah. Um, and then there's this... Uh, 
There's $6.3 million of funding to the Family Violence and Cross-Examination of Parties Scheme. Have a guess what that might be. Is it churchy? <sighs> or is it an MRA initiative? No, no, no. Uh, Sorry, I did a bad job of guessing. No, no. <laughs> so, prior to September 2019, you could be cross-examined by your rapist in court. What? Yeah. Or oh, you could yeah, be cross- I didn't know that. You could be cross-examined <laughs> by... Um, you know, somebody who had committed violence against you. And so the Family Violence and Cross-Examination of Parties Scheme basically brings in more lawyers um, so that a victim survivor does not have to be directly cross-examined by their abuser. The reason we have this particular scheme is because the family court was set up differently to what you would expect other courts to be set up as, and they have different procedures and rules to every other court. This is why it deserves its own episode of what we lost. <laughs> but the thing is, it's an actual, it's a shit solution to something that should never have been allowed in the first place. Yeah. But, you know, we're dedicating $6.3 million to it. Mm. Like, again, this is piecemeal. This is nothing. This is... Yeah. What even is it for? At $6.3 million, why... I mean, if you would give me $6.3 million, that would be great. Like, I'm, sh- I'm sure for the few people who will be able to access this funding before it runs out, I'm sure it will be wonderful. But at $6.3 million, it's not going to go very far. Uh, basically, this is a whole lot of money. This entire budget is a lot of money that says we will prevent holding cis dudes to account for their violence. Yeah. It's a whole lot of money that basically puts the onus on victim survivors to uplift their li- uproot their lives in order to be mm. safe. Yeah. You know, look, I'm not a fan of cops, but, you know, if people were serious, we live in a police state. We live in a police state mm. under capitalism. And, you know, for any government to then be able to say, we will take this seriously, here's an extra $200 million for policing, or here's an extra um, $300 million mm. for policing, at least... While I fundamentally disagree with using that money for that Castle purpose, response, yeah, it still is a better response in terms of of who has to bear the cost of violence. Yeah, no, I agree. So yeah. we put out the call for some questions, questions about specific questions about this particular budget, and one of the ones that we got from Rennie was their announcements about help for women, particularly those fleeing domestic violence, is welcome, but probably not enough. When the initial flurry of help settles, many of these women will rely on parenting payment single or job seeker payment Uh, both payments are terribly inadequate apart from jobs 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 which is not an option for everyone what will they do to to provide ongoing assistance to these women uh fuck all honestly the government is doing everything in its power to make victim survivors pay for their own safety yeah there's basically fuck all in this budget um Mm. for specifically for providing assistance to those fleeing domestic violence. Mm. Yeah, job seeker payment is woefully inadequate and that's not addressed by this particular budget. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing in the budget for um, of any of the social service provisions um, to be raised or lifted beyond, was it $3.70 something or other that the federal government did last <laughs> year I, I, that Labor voted for, didn't even put up resistance for. Thanks, Albo. Yeah, fuck you. No. Yeah. So there's nothing in there to provide a safety net for anyone fleeing family and domestic violence. And on top of that, here's where it gets. Here's where it gets grim. Um, it goes from fuck to super fuck. I, I swear that the federal government is doing everything in its power to make claiming any kind of assistance. Yeah, impossible. Yeah. So there is a um, payment available from Services Australia, otherwise known as Centrelink. You know, they've decided to change the name and I still don't know why. It's called the Crisis Payment for Extreme Circumstances, Family and Domestic Violence. And good governance provision that is in Section 51. 
Good governance. Also, in the Constitution, separation of church and state. Well, I mean, we do have that in Section 116 of the Australian Constitution, which I really do need to get on a shirt or a mug or something like that. <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah, they just don't enforce that, yeah. so why should they enforce also, anything fuck else? The, fuck the High Court and its rulings on... So, what is the government providing for women? So, the payment that is available for anyone fleeing uh, domestic and family violence is called the Crisis Payment for Extreme Circumstances, Family and Domestic Violence. It's a catchy one. It is. Um, but you must meet all of the following to get this payment. Be contactable by our social workers to assess your situation. Be eligible for or getting an income support payment or abstudy living allowance. Be in financial severe hardship. Be in Australia when the incident happened and when you submit your claim. First two, uh, sorry, the first and last one. Yeah, it's totally reasonable, but... I don't know, social workers in, in family and domestic violence and taking kids and all this kind of stuff, it's a big... I know there's a lot of First Nations people oh, yeah, who no, would be I, like, fuck it, no. I mean, as far as, as, far as the provision yeah. of, of anything from the government goes, you know, like these are not... Yeah. There's the structural issue regarding the role of social workers in society, um, and then there's the whole thing of going... We just need somebody to come in and, and make sure that you're getting the right payment. In an ideal world, social workers wouldn't be the issue. Mm, yeah, in an ideal world. Yeah. But the first one, you have, you have to be receiving government support to get government support for a crisis. Mm. That just seems yeah. fucked. Yeah. Third one, be in severe financial hardship. Well, what is severe financial hardship according to Services Australia? If your liquid assets total either... Less than two weeks of the maximum rate of your income support payment or or ab-study living allowance if you're single, or less than four weeks of the maximum rate of your income support payment or ab-study living allowance if you're partnered. Which is fuck all. Where applicable, the maximum rate of your income support payment or ab-study includes the energy supplement, the pension supplement, the pharmaceutical allowance, and the rent allowance. Liquid assets include cash you have on hand. So you basically have to leave with nothing. Money you have in the bank. What happens with joint accounts? Mm. Especially if you're in a situation with financial abuse. Yeah. You might have money in your name. You might have no access to that money. This is just... Also, you might not even be able to get the card. Yeah. Yeah. You might not have passports. You might not have, like, any photo ID. This is just... This is, once again, the government setting up legislation without actually engaging with people working in the sector. It also includes shares, bonds, gifts. <laughs> like gifts. Yeah. Gifts. And other money you can access. It's just like, what in the fuck? Yeah. So does that mean that essentially if you have family that is able to lend you money? This is just... This is the government making it as absolutely difficult as possible. It's, they're making it difficult not only for women to access this, these funds, but for women to actually leave domestic violence. Yep. This, this, what they're doing here is killing women. There is some support. I, I'm not disagreeing with you. And, I, and we just will continue on that theme throughout. Because <laughs> it's, it's really a recurring theme. I just I don't have the energy. I don't have the emotional yeah. energy for this episode. <laughs> but... It is literally because essentially every time we go through a line of the of all of the research that we did for this, it's just like... It's 101 different ways of the LMP harming women. It's 101 different ways for the LMP to harm you if you decide, if you decide to abandon the nuclear family and your mm. God-given responsibility. Yeah. Fucking hell. Yeah. 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 So to go back to the question, there are 
state government funded payments and support services that are available. You will have to check what is available in your particular states. Um, but as far as federal government funding goes, there's fuck all. Yeah. And it's just everything that exists for it contains a whole bunch of structural limitations that mm. prevent you from accessing it. And yeah. the one thing that I'm super glad that they actually did do was scrap the idea that you should draw down from your superannuation yeah. in order to uh, escape. And, you know, like that, that's, that's an entirely different conversation of, of whether or not that's, that's necessarily a terrible idea in terms of what we could do with that. Mm. But in this case, yeah. It's fucked. Yeah. And also, if you draw down from your superannuation, you don't get access to any of the others because your liquid assets are too close. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, oh, oh my just, goodness. Yeah. Fucking everyone over. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yes, unfortunately, Renny, there is not much. Yeah. If anything at all. In state, like in Victoria, for example, we, we do have shelters and we have, you know, like Women's Health West and we do have services that specialise. But these, again, these services are so underfunded and under-resourced that they can't actually provide anything but the bare minimum of service. So their actual quality of service is really poor, which isn't on the people who do the hard work there. They're doing incredible work, but they've just got limitations based on the amount of funding that they get. And, you know, like the one up in Cairns has, is pretty much having to close its doors because it's, it's gotten bugger all funding. Jesus. And, yeah, yeah. you know, and, but this is a cycle. Of mm. basically going, particularly in regional regional Australia, there's nothing. Mm. And when there and where there does exist something, it is temporary because at some point soon it will be underfunded to the point that it can't function anymore. And then mm. it will be up to the community to start a new thing to then get funding, which will eventually be starved of funding because of the massive demand for its services. Mm. Um, would now be a good time to go to the interview? Yes. Yes, that I totally forgot to mention up top because I am not a professional. Um, so Steph and I spoke with Eliza Littleton. We were very lucky to speak with Eliza Littleton, who is a research economist from the Australia Institute. And we'll go to the interview now. Now we have with us Eliza Littleton from the Australia Institute to talk with us about the 2020 to 2021 budget and how that impacts women. Thank you for joining us. Uh, would you mind telling us just a little bit about yourself? Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so as you mentioned, my name's Eliza um, and I'm a research economist here at the Australia Institute. So my background is in political economy and public policy. So I'm really interested in economic analysis, but I'm really interested in you using economic analysis in a way that demonstrates why uh, addressing disadvantage is a really good idea. So obviously there's lots of moral arguments to address disadvantage in society, but, and I think that, and that's really great, but I, I'm really interested in also being able to kind of economically justify and create more gravitas for the side saying, let's do this. Yeah. The LNP government was widely criticised last year for their lack of funding for women's services, and this year they promised us a women's-focused budget. Have they delivered? The, the government was really under a lot of pressure, I think, to deliver a more female-friendly budget, and, and this was a, for a couple of reasons. I think, firstly, you know, it's well known now that there was kind of a disproportionate share of, of the costs of the COVID pandemic and recession on women, and I think that the government kind of suffered a lot of backlash as a result of their 2020 budget, which was very heavily focused on investing in quite male-dominated industries. 
And then they also face a lot of criticism over uh, the inadequate response to revelations of sexual harassment and sexual assault that, you know, occurred in Parliament House. So I think, firstly, we probably wouldn't have seen this focus if, if it wasn't for all this kind of pre-existing context. And of course, yeah, we have seen a bit of a shift in the most recent budget in both tone and there was a lot more uh, spending focus on, on what they're calling kind of women's policies. Um, and I'm not sure if you saw, but the actual physical, the government budget papers, but you know, those uh, like really glossy narrative spin booklets that they produce covered in pictures of women. And I think that this is uh, quite indicative of the approach that this budget <laughs> took to, to um, addressing, you know, economic disadvantage for women or just disadvantage for women in general. So if we, we kind of dig a little bit deeper into the budget items, we did see, I think kind of overall, I'd, I'd like to characterise it this way and I, I want to follow it up by, by using some examples. But I think what we saw is relatively small amounts of money kind of divided across many different policy areas, often symbolic policy areas that the, the, the government categorised as, as women's policies. But also the, the funding was really short-term funding as well. So, for example, the $250 million that the government invested in domestic violence services, this drops by 99% in four years. So, you know, these, this money is going to disappear and the issues will absolutely remain. Uh, we also saw $148 million over five years invested in women's health. But um, in fact, only 22% of this funding that was announced is actually new money. So a lot of, most of it is old money that they're just re-announcing in the women's budget statement. And again, this money is going to reduce to 4.2 million in four years time. Another one is the childcare policy. Obviously this made up a huge uh, portion of what they called their investment in women, in women's economic security, safety and health. And of course, great, uh, childcare spending is a fantastic way to spend budget money, but it, their policy is very targeted. So it's only estimated to uh, improve childcare affordability for a quarter of families that have children in care. So really it's, it's just kind of a symbolic gesture and this money is not really enough and it's kind of just going to these symbolic priorities and it's it's not money that's going to stick around like the the, the economic disadvantage of, of women there's a bunch more i think you know they they lowered the or they abolished the 450 dollar earning threshold for the superannuation guarantee contributions so this is a policy that's been called for for a while but it doesn't necessarily address the fact that uh women still uh, retire with 28 percent less super in their uh, retirement savings so yeah this this is not really kind of cutting to the core of the structural issues it's just a band-aid and it, it is kind of just for show. One of the other things that I kind of wanted to say about this was also that all these kind of funding measures that they've uh, used to kind of distract us with, well, it hides the fact that a lot of the more permanent budget 
benefits, so things like tax cuts and tax concessions that are kind of bestowed on high income earners that are particularly men, uh, are worth a lot more than a lot of the budget items. Mm. And so kind of any budget that doesn't really address the, the, the gap in the distribution of tax concessions and tax cuts is not really, can't ever really be called a women's budget, I think. Yeah. I'm just going back to a point that you raised, that reusing mm. like money from other budgets. We did see that in last year's budget as well. Is this quite a common thing? Do all governments do that or just the LNP? I mean, I think that all governments do this because there are obviously they want to make it look like they're they're splashing money around more money than they're actually dedicating to things and of course they announce things between budgets and so they want to include that in their budget mm. as well. So I can't really say whether the, the the coalition government do this more than Labor. That would be a really interesting line of inquiry. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, can't, I can't speak to this, but I can say that in this budget particularly, they did a lot of this. One of the things that didn't get a lot of attention was that the Office for Women had their, their funding halved over four years. Again, it's there's so much in the detail of this budget that just didn't get picked up in this rhetoric and this spin and the narrative mm. that this was a women's budget. Yeah. Yeah, race payment. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned before about tax cuts. Do tax cuts help women at work? And what are the differences between tax cuts and funding services? Yeah, so to answer the first bit of the question, I mean, tax cuts can help women if like income tax cuts can help women. They, I mean, obviously in, in kind of an individualistic sense, it puts a some amount of money back into the pockets of, of people who are working, whether or not they're women or men. But I think this kind of distracts from two really important points about tax cuts. And that is firstly, who is benefiting the most from tax cuts? And it's not women. And secondly, what are the opportunity costs of tax cuts? So if we weren't providing a tax cut, what would we be doing with the tax revenue we would have otherwise had? And, and to, speaking to the first point, most of the, the benefits of tax cuts and tax concessions go to men. And this is for two reasons. Firstly, because typically men earn more than women because they're usually in higher income industries. Uh, they also have usually have like more secure contracts. And then secondly, they're less likely to take time off um, during the prime uh, earning years of their career um, to look after children. So they earn more money. Uh, as a result of this, they also capture most of the benefit of tax concessions. And this is because, as I mentioned, tax concessions reflect labour market inequalities between men and women. So the Australian Institute actually did some research where we looked at the distribution of four big tax concessions. So negative gearing, uh, capital gains discount, uh, superannuation tax concession, and uh, excess franking credits. And we found that these four tax concessions are worth $60 billion a year, which is huge, it, uh, like 3% of GDP. And 69% of the benefits from these tax concessions flow to men and only 31% flow to women. The biggest one of these tax concessions is the superannuation tax concession. So it's worth 41 billion. So most of the value of these four. And yeah, it's 72% of, of the benefits from the superannuation tax concession go to men. And just for reference and context, we spend less money on the National Disability Insurance Scheme 
than we do the, the superannuation tax concession. We spend less on aged care services. We even spend less on the Australian army. So it's huge. And the issue with this, yeah, is that when we legislate tax concessions or tax cuts, what usually happens, right, is we have to announce budget cuts or cuts to services, things like health, education, care services, and cutting services actually primarily hurts women. So on one hand, tax concessions benefit men the most. And as a result of the tax concessions, we usually see bending cuts, which hurt women the most. There's a really gendered dimension to tax cuts and tax concessions. So as much as individually women at work might benefit, if we kind of zoom back out and we look at the big picture, our tax system is really perpetuating economic gender inequality. That's a lot of submarines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which single funding change, be it increase, decrease or scrap, would have the most impact on women and other economically disadvantaged groups? Mm, that's such a tricky question to answer, I think, for two reasons. Uh, firstly, because I think that economic disadvantage is systemically embedded and dimensions of economic uh, disadvantage and all types of disadvantage are really interrelated. If we're looking at economic disadvantage, we obviously have, particularly for women, we, we obviously have um, labour market segregation. So with with industries where there's a higher concentration of, of female workers and these jobs and these workers tend to be really undervalued. So receive lower pay, they're more likely to be insecure jobs. And we, you know, we all know that uh, women tend already face kind of barriers to participating in the workforce. And for multiple reasons, but one of the main ones being that they're still expected to take on the lion's share of, of unpaid care work. And these dimensions of economic disadvantage feed into other types of, of disadvantage, like disadvantage around housing and health and safety. So in this sense, I think there's no one funding change that would address kind of all these dimensions of disadvantage and no silver bullet funding change. And the second reason I think that this question is really hard to answer is because, you know, how do we define the most impact? Is it that we are saying if we raise a lot more money, we can make more or like we, uh, yeah, raise a lot more budget revenue, have more impact? If that's the case, then um, as I mentioned, if we kind of eradicated a lot of tax loopholes and tax concessions, which are worth a lot more money than budget items in a lot of cases, we would be able to pull a bunch more money back into the, the budget revenue or the pool of money where we fund services out of. So for example, as I mentioned, tax concessions are worth $60 billion per year. If we close these tax loopholes, we wouldn't necessarily raise exactly $60 billion per year, but you know we would have a lot more money to play with in the budget. And then, of course, the impact that you would have with this money would really depend on how it was being spent. Firstly, if I could choose to wind back tax concessions, that's what I would absolutely do because we would get a lot more money in doing that. And secondly, if I could choose the way that we spend this money and I could only choose one policy, I think it would probably have to be to introduce free universal public childcare. This is a, a no-brainer in terms of an economic policy. It benefits everyone. So not only does it create 
jobs directly in the industry. But it also frees parents up to be able to do paid work or more paid work if, if that's what they want to do, which delivers benefits to the whole economy. So, you know, we're increasing household income, which flows into expanding tax revenue and then increasing consumption in the economy, which then leads to more GDP growth as well. And in fact, if Australia had the same level of female participation as Nordic countries, which we all know have a much more generous childcare policies, we would actually see around uh, 380,000 more women in the workforce in Australia. So, yeah, I think I know that's a really convoluted way to answer this question, but uh, it's a it's a, a really good question because it kind of shows that these these dimensions of, uh, of inequality are really kind of complicated. They're kind of overlapping um, and interrelated and resolving one is not necessarily going to resolve others. But um, there are policies that can have bigger impact than other policies. And just as a side note, I wanted to mention that I think that one of the biggest problems that disadvantaged groups have in Australia is, is connected to wages and job security. So stagnant wages and the fact that so many contracts now are, are really insecure. And we do really need radical uh, industrial relation reform to bolster bargaining powers of workers. But this is obviously not a problem that can be resolved with one policy. So yeah. that's that's kind of why I, <laughs> that wasn't my choice. Yeah. Our last episode was on um, universal childcare. Yeah. Yeah. So we um we both very agree that it would be a yeah. better policy, again, not just for women, but for the society as a whole. The, the most recent budget is an example of what not to do, really, I think, which is just <laughs> money around in kind of a haphazard way to, to really just improve image rather than to actually address problems. We need like really solid permanent funding going towards all the all the services they they really started to fund um, but we need kind of more holistic approach to these policies where there's you know you can create a lot of certainty I think the other thing is and this yeah as I just mentioned with industrial relations reform I think this is one of the best things that they could do is channel a bunch of money well it's, it's not even money-based, right? It's, it, they need to really change uh, industrial relations and ensure that uh, workers have more security uh, in their jobs but, and, and um, actually just like use proper wage policy levers to increase wages rather than paying businesses money to, yeah. to then jobs to then increase wages, which is the most indirect and, you know, neoliberal way to go about it. So I yeah. think... Really, we just need a bit more authenticity and um, maybe we would actually get policies that, that women have been asking for. Um, and, it, and absolutely would be remiss for me to say, to not to mention again, that, that they need to address the, um, the kind of sexist implications of our tax policy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. I really no worries. Yeah, very, anyway, it was very cool. Is um so where can we see more of your articles and your research and things like that? Uh so my reports and things like that go up on the uh, Australia Institute's website, um, which you can just easily find with a Google search. Uh, AustraliaInstitute.org.au. I'm also on Twitter, so at Eliza Littleton. Uh, and yeah, I think yeah, those are the, the main two ways that you can follow along, I suppose. <laughs> 
Right, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. No worries. Thank you so much, Lydia and Steph. She was rad. So rad. Oh my God, yeah. One of my favourite things about this podcast is all the cool people I get to meet. But yeah, so Stephanie, if you mm-hmm. could change one thing in the budget, what would you change? I, 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 don't, I don't have an answer. And, you know, yes, you know, UBI, but what, whatever. Because the moment you said that, I'm just going, family court, family court. Huh. Yeah. But at the same time, going, there's no one thing. You know, Eliza makes a point essentially that um, universal uh, child care. Yeah, as far as, as, as structural spending goes, that one thing would be having an almost incalculable effect on yeah. Australian society. Yeah, like I, I think a UBI. I mean, I, I mean, we all know what I think about UBIs, but I, for in the short term, I think it would actually be really like if you're talking about family courts being ineffective, people being unable to get out of domestic violence, a UBI would be very useful. Yeah, I mean, and we know how people in different economic sectors spend. Like people in low income areas, they spend all of their income, whereas people in high economic area will hoard their income. Very much so. So there will be an increase to the economy when poor people get more money, which is what we saw over COVID. Like that's why our economic recovery or whatever is a lot better, in part because of Frydenberg's fucking um, economic management. But his economic management was essentially socialist policy. Socialism saved us, not the LNP. Yeah. Would you like to know the regional youth unemployment figures for Queensland? Probably. Uh, December 2020? The reason I bring this up is purely because essentially all of that extra funding that was in those welfare... Okay, Townsville, youth unemployment dropped 7.5%. Down from 18.5%, dropped 7.5%. Central Queensland, youth unemployment dropped 6.9%. Regional Queensland, where that money went back into the community, youth unemployment fell significantly. The one place it didn't was Wide Bay, which is the cashless debit card trial area. Oh... Which rose 8.5%. You want to talk about socialist policy? Where government gave people, gave poor people money, they spent it and stimulated the economy. Look, I'm shocked. We've got no precedent for this. What would Keynes know? Sorry, that whole using socialism to save capitalism from itself sort of, like I'm not a massive fan of it. But anyway, yes, absolutely. It's just obviously it will create more jobs and it will increase the economy. I'd love to see what effect this had on discouraged workers. Yeah, what you get to live on is so low that essentially, like, buying new clothes is a luxury. Yeah. But, you know, again, discussions for later time. Because <laughs> essentially, like, after, you know, after the wonderful complete lack of structural spending in the domestic and family violence, we have the respect at work. Mm. $5.3 million over three years to build evidence and further develop primary prevention initiatives for sexual harassment. Look, I'm feeling respected already. Look, the thing is, there is a recommendation in that report that basically Is it fire Christian Porter? It should be. Because unless it's fire Christian Porter, I'm not interested. I mean, I am interested. Please tell us. But, like, that's, that's how you respect women at work is you hold abusers accountable. And the way... The way you do that is by introducing a positive duty to the Sex Discrimination Act. Now, I'm not 100% what a positive duty means. A positive duty basically means that the, there is an obligation to prevent breaches of the act to occur. Yeah. So, basically, you think of it in terms of um, workplace health and safety laws. 
mm. where the obligation is on the business to train people to prevent injuries from occurring in the first place. Yeah. Victoria, for example, their um, Equal Opportunities Act has a positive um, duty attached to, to the Equal Opportunities Act. Um, but, you know, and I do have a, a 5G tinfoil conspiracy. Love it. Okay, so in 2013, the Sex Discrimination Act was amended to include protections for trans and intersex people. And I would suspect that the reason that they don't want to introduce a positive duty is because essentially it protects trans people. Has this got and anything to do with Stoker? Stoker? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Claire watson your face from Tasmania. <sighs> Introducing a positive duty is by far one of the most effective structural things that you can do to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace. Once again, I mean, maybe this is my tinfoil hat moment, but like, uh, it's almost as if they don't actually care about women in the workplace. I don't think that's a tinfoil hat moment. I think it's evident. But anyway. Because <laughs> Christian Porter is still in the government and so is Orlamming. <sighs> Okay, so shifting from, we'll call it a lack of respect at work, moving into childcare. Which, yeah, I think we, over the last couple of bits and pieces, we have talked a lot about childcare. But the one thing that um, that you can really bring home from this is that it will, as Eliza said, it will only affect about 20 to 25% of rich families. Yeah. There's no change to the activity tests. There's no structural improvements. Um about how childcare is delivered or um, or its accessibility. Also, I do have a fundamental objection of putting infrastructure spending in the women's budget. Yeah, yeah. It's a theme of this of, of this government and this budget. It's not just women who have children. Not first of all, it's like not just women who have uteruses. Children have dads. Yeah. Not always. Sometimes. Sometimes they have two dads. Some families have two mums and two dads. Like, how is this? Why is this in the women's budget? I think. It speaks to the broader understanding that this government has, and particularly this Prime Minister has, as to the way that this government sees women's role in society. It is quite emblematic, isn't it? Yeah. And I think I was having this conversation with you a little while ago of going, like, the idea of putting domestic and family violence in the women's budget is is extremely offensive to me, not just as a victim survivor, but also because it puts the onus, this is a women's problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. Of going, why why isn't there a men's budget? And why isn't it saying, look, dudes, this is what you're costing us. Yeah. There is a lot of money that is, that is and has been allocated in the past to not holding men to account. Yeah. You know, and, and, in its allocation, we've decided to label it as something that benefits women. Yeah. Which, you know, like I, I'm all for putting all of the things that benefit women into a budget. It's also not Men benefiting money. women. Yeah, exactly. It's- Safety shouldn't be a benefit. It should be the baseline. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm sorry. To be safe at work, to be safe in your home, to be safe in the streets isn't a privilege. It's a it's a goddamn right. It's, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, again, you know, it's a, it sounds like it's a conspiracy theory, but it's... Yeah, I know. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? To, to think that the government is actively working against the interests of women. And yet, all the data points to yes. And here we are, talking about piecemeal funding that's allocated over periods of four years. But Steph, it's fine. Because in the education budget, they've announced $10.7 million for a respectful relationships program. I'm not going to make a milkshake or taco joke for this one. <laughs> I just can't. Not after, not after everything. No. But how many would that buy? It would depend where you got it from, I guess. Yeah, I don't know if I can keep being angry at this anymore. Like, I've spoken about... Oh, 
Mm-hmm. I say I've spoken about it at length, but I think I've spoken about it a lot on like Twitter and Facebook and stuff because we haven't been. And you brought it up on um on Ospol Snack on Ospol Snack Pod. Yeah, yeah. We have these resources available. Go check out Rasara. It's not a compliment. Go look at Enrape on Campus. And we will provide a list of resources that you can access it in the show notes. It is such a long list. We've got Casa. We've got Wire. We've got. Now I can't remember anymore. But like, there are so many, so many. Even, even Slutwalk, and yet we're spending thirty-five million. Thirty-five. Thirty-five million. Thirty-five million to pay Mormons to make videos where they frame women as abusers. Like, fuck off. And the thing is, like, okay, so we're talking about the education section of the budget, <laughs> and sorry, university is now, in some cases, twice as expensive. Mm. Fields that were traditionally dominated by women. Yeah. Those subject prices have gone up. Yeah. Law is now twice as expensive, so we will see less women in law. And that is a big problem. Yeah, that is a huge problem. So there's an interesting statistic around um, women in university sectors as well. Regardless of the gender balance, it's always men that graduate into positions with higher income. Again, just fucking women over. And I I think we've, we've been very binary in our language. But that's, again, just how the, the government frames this. It's nice that essentially that um, the women's budget statement actually does mention LGBTIQA plus people a few times. That's about it. In the women's budget. But LGBTQIA plus includes cis men. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say it's good. Like there's, there's nothing in there. There was an attempt. <laughs> I just, oh. I, I can't even... Yeah, the Stop It at the Start campaign, 24.4 million. Uh, again, posters. That was in the 35. Oh, of course. There are so many community-made resources yeah. that are free. Yeah. Like, if you were to throw $10 million at any one of those community-made yes. resources, it's already finished. It's already good to go. It's researched. It's, it's already documented. It's peer-reviewed. It's effective. And it exists. It doesn't need to be made. Yeah, and then you, but instead you were like, let's pay some Mormons to make people feel awkward about consent. With weird voiceovers and sporting metaphors. How do we appeal to the children? How do you do, fellow kids? <laughs> yeah. So. Healthcare. Now, if you're new to the podcast, um, Leah is a mental health nurse, or was, and I was a pharmacist. So this is kind of our, our jam. Yeah, if you thought I was ranty before... <laughs> Yeah, I, I will keep my rantiness to a minimum because um, I still can't get over the $8 million allocated for endometriosis and period. <laughs> and somehow, apparently, these two things are the same in the government's mind, despite the fact that the average time it takes for a diagnosis is eight to ten years. But we're giving $8 million to this and period pain. And period pain. I they just, seriously, they just read the headlines on this, I swear to God. They read the front page of Google. Or, or the headings in a Wikipedia article. Yeah. I just, yeah. I don't want to say it's useless, but fuck, it's useless. Put $8 million, what the fuck is it going to do? There's $487.0 million for mental health spread across four years. Four years. You know, there's $2.0 billion allocated across the entire health budget section. Mm. Um, and... You know, at this point, I do feel that whilst the in, the investment in mental health is super good, in health, there is a principle and it is called primary prevention. <laughs> and how do we prevent all of these things that we're about to talk about in the list? 
by addressing the social determinants of health and how it's the best way that a government can address the social determinants of health. Uh, that would be um, providing housing. You cannot recover from mental health issues. You will not recover from mental health issues if your housing is unsuitable, unstable, unsafe, or like if you don't have any at all. It's, it's hard to recover from chronic depression if you, don't, if you live in a car. Yeah, or on your mate's couch. Or if you're in the street. No. Raising the rate. I'm just going to throw this out there because it's come up before, but it's going to keep coming up. Yeah. The biggest investment we can make in all areas of health right now as a country is to raise the rate of social security, welfare, whatever we want to call it, um, <laughs> above the fucking poverty line. Yes. Yes. Like it's, it is not rocket science. It's not rocket surgery. Fucking no brainer, to be honest. It's absurd how simple all of this is. If people can eat, if people can home themselves, home themselves. If they can afford to pay their medica- for their medication. Their medication, that is such a key factor. Such a key factor. We see this so often in psych where people are admitted um, having an acute episode. They stabilise on their medications, but as soon as they're discharged, they can no longer afford that medication. Like this, just this whole system is so fucked. Yeah. You will get... No argument and more ranting so, from me. Sorry, I, I promised I would try and tone it down, but I just cannot. I, I can't either. 278.6 million, again, over four years for Headspace. Look, I appreciate what Headspace do, but they are chronically underfunded, under-resourced, and this is a drop in the ocean. And it's no substitute for qualified mental health practitioners. I'm so- Which, by the way, the reason that we need Headspace in the first place is because we don't have enough qualified mental health practitioners. Well, we do. But they're all burnt out. Hi. Hi, how's things? <laughs> like, we're, we're burnt out and we're tired. And it's really hard to work in this system where you can see across the board, like you can see the problem with a lot of your patients is financial stress. Well, not only financial stress, it's that kind of capitalistic pressure. Stress to perform. You're unemployed, so your income's poor. You're being stigmatised for being poor. Capitalism is killing people. And this $487 million over four years is, um, it's not going to do anything. And neither is the... $112.4 million over four years for psychosocial support for those who can't access the NDIS. And it's like, what in the entire fuck? I went looking for information on this and I just cannot find it about what the fuck this is supposed to be. I think it's like programs like Mind where you get support workers if you've um, got a chronic mental health illness. But we have the NDIS. Well, that's the other question is why can't people access the NDIS? So you're admitting that you can't get everyone onto the NDIS or that you're kicking people off the NDIS yeah. and they need support, but it's not through the NDIS, which is what the thing was made for. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah. Okay. So. Oh my God. I, I can't. $111 million over three years for group sessions. Do the maths on this. How many hospitals? 33 million every year. Um, I think I think we worked out there's like over 750 uh, hospitals in the private and public. So. so each one of those hospitals has a different ward. Uh, and depending on what ward it is, like in psych, in, in public acute, 
we would have maybe three group sessions a day. Then you would have children's ward, neonatal situation. They would have their own groups. Geriatric wards would have um, different groups. There would be general medical wards would have like physio programs and things like that. Oncology services. Oncology, all of this, like they would all have different types of information. Cardiology. Oh my God. Just is it one person who gets to do this in each hospital? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> I just... Runs all the groups. I, like, I, I want to be positive about this, but at the same time, again, it's... What is it for? I don't know. And this is only group sessions in hospital. So what's actually really beneficial and what mental health needs is day programs and these long-term programs where folk can unlearn uh, learnt behaviours and they're very helpful for a lot of people but if you're poor and you can't afford private healthcare then you can't access these programs which is what would be really good if the private sector had to open it up to public patients that would be fantastic but guarantee you that's not what this is (laughs) nope and And even uh, if it was it's nowhere near enough that is the theme of the budget yeah too little too late yeah why are we here yeah 26.9 million dollars or eating disorders. <laughs> I can't... Okay, so the implication that essentially only women suffer from eating disorders is wrong. It's incredibly wrong, yeah. At, at least 25% of the patients are cis dudes, and, you know, like, at, at 4% of the population at any given time meets the definition of having an eating disorder. Yeah. But also, again... <laughs> and also, it's $26.9 million over four years. Yeah. Sorry, this is just exceptionally frustrating for me because... It's, what even is the point? That's yeah. Just slightly more than $8 million per year. Mm. Okay, so 50, $58.8 million of two years has been um, allocated to fund initiatives to attract, upskill, redistribute mental health professionals and increase the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mental health workers. Which sounds good in theory. Actually, no, it doesn't sound good in theory. No. Because if you've ever actually seen how the mental health system is actually structured, you'd realise that essentially we are still short-staffed. Where's the $58.8 million over any years to um, hold the police officers responsible for deaths in custody accountable? Where's that money? It's not there. No. Where's, where's the, the land back money? Where's that in the budget? Where's reparation? <laughs> Where's compensation for the the stolen gener- horrible healthcare that they've received over generations? Mm. The damage that has been done by providing inadequate healthcare mm. to Indigenous and First Nations people and Torres Strait Islander peoples and Pacific Islander peoples, because let's face it, they were all lumped in as one. Yeah, is in, is is just incalculable. Yeah, no, inter, like intergenerational trauma is the things, yeah. and so is intergenerational health issues. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like going, oh, we're, we're dedicating $58.8 million for two years. To- for two <laughs> like, years. What the fuck is this? To attract, like, oh. upskill and redistribute. It just, I don't, mm, nope. There are people better, much better qualified to talk about this than I am, but this is a joke. Yeah. This is a sick, cruel, twisted joke. It's offensive. Yeah. Yeah, and there's there was there's money that's allocated for the collection of data, as if the entire purpose of state governments and state healthcare uh, services doesn't exist to collect data. But no, no, let's throw some more money in data collection. Yeah. Why? Like, can you at least point out what it is that you're hoping to get out of the data so that we can justify spending more millions of dollars? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's cr- it's sick, cruel, and 
fucked up. It's really weird. Like, if you added up the amount of money that they spent on data collection, it's probably more than yeah. some of Look, if you added it up, it's more than what they probably spent on all initiatives for Indigenous um, mm. First Nations, Torres Strait Islander people so across the entire budget. And once again, the LMP signalling what's really important to them. Yeah. It's fucked. Nastasia asked us, how does the government expect to keep the care industry functional when the starting rate for trained support worker is only $2 above the minimum wage? Okay, so... I did. Oh, I did. I did so much reading into this, and just I worked as a personal carer for a long time. One of the ways that they get away with hiring staff at such a low minimum wage, a lot of migrant workers, yep. who don't understand that understand industrial law. So they're essentially bullied and gaslit and thinking that if they don't perform, that they'll lose their jobs. It's not unskilled labour. Absolutely not. But it's Low barriers to entry. Yes, exactly. So they essentially rely on the fact that these people don't really understand their working rights. I was going to break this down to do two parts of going, what is the government? Oh, sorry. No, no, that's fine. Because that gets to pretty much the heart of all of it. Um, yeah. It's the same with hospo. It's the same with farming. Yeah. It's the same with retail. It's the same with so many areas. Yeah, Serco. Yeah. Um, mm. Look, the first part of that, how to maintain and develop the workforce, it's fuck all in, in the budget. No. Um, no. They're not throwing cash at workers. They're not. The government is in a position where it can change the award and it's mm-hmm. actively choosing not to do it. There is currently um, work being done to update the award at the Fair Work Commission. The government has the opportunity to um, support that and the government has the, has the ability to be able to just rewrite the award and it is choosing, actively choosing not to support either of these things. Um, so as to how they're going to keep the aged care sector operational... Uh, $652.1 million has been allocated to upskill the aged care workforce, including an additional 33,800 training places through Job Trainer. I hate these job hmm. program things because, what is it, Job Maker? <laughs> over, over the course of a year, 609 jobs made despite billions being allocated to it. Jobs for the boys. <laughs> 609 jobs to be exact. 609 boys. <laughs> To enable existing and new aged care workers to improve their qualification. That is good structural spending. I will give it credit where it's due. In light of that first question that we broke it up into, you're still not paying them adequate amounts of money. Training's not the issue. The issue is, like you said, poor wages, but also poor nurse-patient ratios. Wages and conditions are what drives health in a particular employment sector, and none of this addresses that. We can spend all of this money training people, but we will not retain them. No, absolutely. Natasha, thank you for your question. Unfortunately, we don't have an... (laughs) It's, again, another question we don't have a good answer for. Oh, no, we do. Like, the government will continue to exploit workers. Yeah, so... There is stuff that's been allocated for what they refer to about as informal caregivers. Yeah. That's included in the women's budget too, because guess who all of the care responsibilities? <laughs> From birth to death, you are looking after Fuck somebody. you! Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, like there's talk of extra respite places, and but essentially it is yet again another example of where the federal government is basically saying... Women, this is what we expect of you. Yes. I, I just don't have words for it because essentially, again, it appears in the women's budget. It is it is this ongoing theme that it's basically going, this is, your, this is what we th- think is your job and your role in society. 
Yeah. Uh, Jessica asked us if there will be any uh, accountability measures for all this extra money going to already privatized care services. Leah? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> the government has actually put in the budget where they mention an ICAC. There's a big zero next to it. <laughs> Zero funding was allocated to all transparency measures <laughs> across government, across budget. <laughs> Way to go, like, full mask off. So, unfortunately, um, Jessica, there is no accountability measures whatsoever. There is absolutely zero, zero recourse. We have zero recourse, apart from either voting these people out or... Yeah. Setting up guillotines. Look, I will personally donate money to setting up guillotines. I know a lot of people who would. Do they sell them at Bunnings? Look, I, I tried to make one with Lego once. So, um. And so one of the things that we actually really wanted to get into was the underlying plan that is supposed to inform all of this government spending, particularly as it pertains to uh, the National Plan to Reduce Violence Against Women and Their Children, 2010 to 2022. I hate the title. Yeah, this is um, one of Gillard's little little chestnut. Yeah. Yeah, so this was implemented by the Gillard government with very broad targets, um, with the idea being that community stakeholders, state and federal governments meet on a regular basis to evaluate evidence of improvements in a variety of different metrics relating to um, women's participation in society. Mm. And yes, it, as Leah has said, this is all very binary. Um, we are using the language specifically given to us by the government for this purpose, unfortunately. Yeah. Mm, what is there? There's four phases spread out over three years. Allegedly. <laughs> We're naming three-year blocks of time without actually doing the underlying work for it. So phase one, building a strong foundation. Phase two is moving ahead. Phase three, promising result. And guess which phase we're in right now? We're turning the corner. No. Seriously, if you had have told me this was Morrison, I wouldn't be surprised. I cannot believe, th- I mean, I, I can believe this is Labour, but yeah. What focus group come up with this nonsense? Seriously. This plan has six national outcomes, yeah. which we'll very shortly get into. One of the things I really want to point out is that the phase period is three years. The evaluation period is in four-year blocks. <laughs> so we are into the next phase before we have evaluated whether or not the phase that we were in actually did the things that we wanted them to do. Here's the thing, though, because outcome number one is communities are safe and free from violence. Mm. Success will be measured by an increase in communities' intolerance to viol- of violence against women. The data reference that is being used to evaluate this is a national community attitude survey <laughs> to be undertaken every four years across the life of the national plan. So, um, essentially, there will be three evaluations, or possibly two. Let's bring us back to Community Attitudes Survey. So, who's ever lied on a self-rated test? (laughs) And especially when you're talking about abusers, they justify their behaviour. So, they're not going to say on a survey, I think it's totally fine to beat a woman. They're not going to say that out loud. But when they actually do beat women... Or their partner. They're justifying it in their head that it's not violent. Uh, she made me do it. She pushed me too far. It's not my fault. I was I was teaching her a lesson. Like, Isn't it about a third of Australian do- cis dudes who, th- who don't think that marital rape is a thing? I did not know this statistic, but it does not even slightly surprise me. Marital rape was only criminalised in like 84, maybe. 
like mid to early 80s. There's a generation of people who grew up thinking that this was very normal. Well, more than one generation of people currently. Yes. We're talking about taking community attitude surveys in a background environment in which third of cis dudes think that marital rape is not a crime. Who's going to write that in in a self-reported survey? No one. (laughs) Also, are you even going to put that question into an attitude survey? Yeah. The questions that you input into that survey will be very reflective of what you intend to get out of it. Mm. Yeah. And it's in four-year blocks. Yeah. I highly doubt that anyone is coming back at the end of the turning the corner phase, which is this year, by the way. (laughs) No, seriously. Yeah. This budget gets to the end of this 12-year plan. And depending on the outcome of who wins the election will be the people who write the next plan. Yeah. Yeah. The national outcome too is relationships are respectful. Success will be measured. (laughs) Success will be measured by milkshakes and tacos, Um, but also an improved knowledge of and the skills and behavior for respectful relationships by young people. And the data collected will be evaluation of the respectful relationships Education projects and Commonwealth social marketing campaign. This is where I think um, the the good society. So when all the, the discussion was coming about, about, you know, like these videos were adapted for consent, they weren't made for that, that purpose. They were made for this respectful relationships mm. component for this national plan. Yeah. When you look at the further context of what those videos and that all those resources were and how woefully inadequate that they were and the fact that this is being used to collect data for a national outcome on whether or not... Uh, I can't even say it because essentially just saying it makes me feel dirty in saying it. <laughs> of going, like, that milkshake video was meant to help us evaluate whether or not relationships are respectful in the context of this national plan to reduce violence against women and their children. I, I'm... And it becomes even more grim when you realize that it wasn't consent education talk to people who um who work in this sector talk to experts in this field yeah talk to the experts like fucking hell so national outcome three indigenous communities are strengthened success will be measured by reduction in the proportion of indigenous women who consider that family violence assault and sexual assault are problems for their communities and neighborhoods and increase in the proportion of indigenous women who are able to have their say within their communities on important issues including violence uh why is outcome one and outcome three different why is there two sections that is a very good question. Um, Could it be racism? <laughs> it is very much racism. And also the wording of who consider that family violence. Yeah. You know what? Us both being white, mm. it's the kind of thing of going, there's a lot I want to say, but it is not my place to say it. Mm. Um, beyond of going, this feels dodge as fuck. This feels incredibly racist. Yep. At the very least. Yeah. And paternalistic. Yeah. This is colonialist language wrapped up in pseudo-feminist beliefs. Like, (laughs) the data that's used to evaluate this metric is the um, National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Survey, which again, so surveys. Mm. We collect data on so many different fields through so many different areas of government. Surveys are important, but we have data. Yeah. (gasps) Ah. 
We have so many services and resources that already exist that already have got data and knowledge about these fields. Why are we doing it again? Why don't we just like, you know... Use the entire public service to actually collect, collate and tabulate data, which is what it's there for. I don't know. I'm just like, (sighs) if you funded universities and funded research properly you could have multitudes of research while also hiring people and upskilling people in these fields so that we would know and understand the community and the culture better like we've been collecting data putting out surveys creating resources developing resources for the last 30 or 40 years but none of this data is actually being put together to actually create a bigger picture none of the data is actually being used to inform policy or budgetary requirements like government knows that we need 26 billion for domestic violence and for family every violence. year yearly every year and yet a hundred million just accepting that like victim survivors are gonna be the ones to to maintain their own safety or stay in in a potentially deadly situation it's just Oh, the next one drives me spare. Actually, the the next two are terrible. I mean, like, they're not terrible, but they are. Yeah. National outcome four. Services meet the needs of women and their children experiencing violence. This whole budget is talking about how it doesn't. But apparently we're about to turn a corner. Success will be measured by an increase in the access to and responsiveness of services for uh, victims of domestic and family violence and sexual assault. Data, personal safety survey to be conducted every four years across the life of the national plan. (sighs) Do they just go like, no, it wasn't successful now? Or do they have to wait until... I don't know. (laughs) I I don't know what happens if you don't meet these outcomes. But I do know that um, the uh, safety surveys are actually a really good way of collecting this information because it because a lot of the time you will um, capture statistics on rape and sexual assault that you otherwise wouldn't capture because people don't report to the police. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we know through uh, the ONS survey that was recently completed in the United Kingdom, where one in six rapes were reported to the police. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it captured a whole bunch of data that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to capture just through um, police statistics. Like for example. The UK is going absolutely ridiculously um, batshit over bathrooms and trans people. And guess where the vast majority of sexual assaults occur? Where? At people's homes. Yeah. These surveys do capture really good data. But also it tells us things that we already know. Yeah. But doing nothing. It goes back to all of that funding for family and domestic violence, of which so much of it refuses to hold cis dudes. Accountable. Yeah. Which goes into the next national outcome. Number five, justice responses are effective. Christian Porter, would you like to actually go and get into the bin by yourself or would you like some assistance in getting into the bin? I'm happy to assist you. I'm so happy to assist you. Success will be measured by an increase in the rate of Christian Porter being fired. Sorry, I'll try that again. Success will be measured by an increase of the rate of women reporting domestic violence and sexual assault. That's how we're measuring success? (laughs) so i mean this is again another episode but carceral responses to social issues don't work but also why is it based on the increase of reporting no i mean that on top of it but like we're talking about access to justice justice responses are effective there's there's no talk about transformative or restorative justice nope there's no conversation about social contracts nope Nothing about what the victim survivor actually classifies as justice. No. Nope. Because for each of us, it's different. 
Yeah. And I'm sorry, but fuck the prisons, fuck the state. Yeah. So I'm so angry. <laughs> and number six will make you angrier. I don't. <laughs> Perpetrators stop their violence and are held to account. I'm sorry. I don't think we're ever going to turn this corner. While I'm sorry to say it again, Christian Porter is still the Attorney General. I mean, success will be measured by a decrease in repeated partner victimization. Partner victimization. I'm sorry, I'm getting really mad. I might need a cup of tea. It's like it's it's like they they know exactly where the vast majority of violence occurs. They know it. Mm. They state it. Right there. They state it. I'm pointing to it. It's right there. They're stating it. And everything that this budget and everything else that we have done over the last 30, 40 years has been to avoid talking about that. You know, there's still talk of Kevin Andrews reforming the Marriage Act, if that's the right term for it. And then we have the Religious Discrimination Bill on top of all of this. Yeah. Again, it sounds like a conspiracy theory when you actually put everything together. Yeah. Ultra conservative injecting into the political discourse conservative Christian values. Like there's nothing in this so-called women's budget for reproductive health. There's access to to IVF and and things like that. We didn't really go into it because essentially unfortunately it doesn't help. What about my abortion? What about my free aftercare? That's sorry, that's what that's more what I meant. Yeah. Where's free contraception? Yeah. Universal abortion Universal well, childcare, yeah. universal abortion, universal contraception. These are all things that we can do right now. Yeah, peace, peace. They only introduce childcare as a measure to get more women into the workforce so they can further exploit our labour. But, you know, it, it's this non-stop assault. Yeah, so it's like whenever we attain something or get increased rights, there's always some fuckhead in the corner trying to take it away from us. March for babies every year. It's yeah. ignoring the chronic underfunding and core of it, basically going, we have a list of problems that we know are problems and there is mm. a look over there response. Yeah. And it's not just the Morrison government. Yeah. This was the Turnbull government. This was the Abbott government. This was the Rudd, then Gillard. I can't remember the order of the... Um, of the stabby yeah, anyway, stabbies. What it's it's a government that's that's deeply rooted in capitalism, white supremacy, colonization, and patriarchy. Yeah. That's why there's no significant difference between the two parties. Sure, Labor does a little bit more on the surface, superficially does a little bit more for women and workers, but when you get down to the crux of it, they're still maintaining that capitalistic colonial power. And when you're not willing to address that basis of, of structural oppression, you're not doing any different. The government's gaslighting us and, and trying to tell us that what's going on is fine. It's not fine. Oh. None of this is okay. We should write We should write the budget. Budget reply. Yeah, we probably actually should do that, at least next year anyway. I wonder what, what it takes to get like a media pass. To be honest, would you want to sit through it? And would you be able to sit through it without throwing things at... Um... That was going to be my next question. Uh... Am I allowed to yell? <laughs> It is generally frowned upon. Um, I think that's probably enough ranting yep. for, for one one cold winter night. I think it is time for a nice warm cup of tea and possibly a benzo. <laughs> um, I just want to thank uh, Eliza Littleton for coming on. It was so cool to have you on. She was rad. Thank you so much. So rad. Oh, my God. I loved her brain. People with brains, I sound like a zombie. I loved her brain specifically and I love your brain and good Bye, everyone. Um, what's the thing that we say? If you enjoyed this yeah, episode. If you enjoyed this episode, <laughs> please remember to like and subscribe. And if you would like to leave a review, 
They are very helpful to our metrics. So please. Yes. Boost the algorithm. Fight the system by gaming the algorithm. (laughs) Yes, do that. Okay. Bye. Bye. Oh, my goodness.